Hello and welcome to another edition of Biting Talk with Two Chicks, presented by me, William Sitwell, restaurant critic for The Telegraph. With Two Chicks egg whites, you can add a little oomph and protein to your morning porridge. Or what about a frothy top for your favourite sour? Speaking of which, don't miss our resident mixologist Farhad Haydari's cocktail of the week on this episode. He's lost the plot, you see. He thinks it's winter. Open the curtains, Farhad, and see if you can spot that gold thing in the sky. It's still up there. Then why don't you mix us something appropriate? Also on this week's show, we meet Charlie Gent. His fascinating new venture is aimed at budding food and drink entrepreneurs who need a helping hand to kickstart their business ideas. He's founded Mission Kitchen. It's a 16,000 square foot space in Covent Garden. It's got desks, cooking facilities, and it's there for our rising stars of the culinary world. So if you've got an idea, be it a vegan BAP or an online drink store, stay tuned. Then we chat embers and briquettes with Chris Taylor, whose firm Whittle and Flame is producing sustainable British charcoal. It's a fascinating process and will make you think twice next time you need some coals for the barbie and you're tempted by those petrol-smelling bad boys at the supermarket or the gas station. But first, as I labour constantly to encourage people, both young and old, to consider careers in hospitality, we get inspiration from the brilliant, the young, the all-around fabulous talent that is Ruth Handsome, 25-year-old head chef of the Princess of Shoreditch in London. Well, the news is that there are some... I think it's almost a million vacancies across Britain at the moment. Many of those are in hospitality. How do we encourage young, well, and old, to get into the kitchen? Well, let's speak to someone who really knows about it, who's at the coalface. She's only 25. She's head chef at the celebrated Princess of Shoreditch, a pub part of the Noble Inns group of uh, hostelries. And uh, I'm delighted to say that uh, 25-year-old Ruth Handsome, who cares about your age, actually it is relevant, uh, joins me on Biting Talk. Hi, Ruth. Hi, good morning. Now, what dragged you from sunny Darlington down to dingy old Shoreditch? Isn't there life up in the north? Couldn't you have had a career out there? To be honest, I think uh, if I look at the state of the industry now, I probably would have stayed up north. You know, there's some fantastic up and coming restaurants with Tommy Banks and Kenny Atkinson and things. But if even just going back 10 years ago, uh, the industry was very London centric um, without upsetting anyone. I'll say that. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, it was uh, kind of coming to college in London. I'd done a competition for under 16s uh, called Future Chef. And I just really fell in love with the industry. So I told my mum I was uh, going to apply to Westminster Kingsway College. Uh, and that's what I did. I found a flat on Gumtree and kind of uh, moved. I think she thought I'd be back within two to three weeks when I couldn't figure out how to use the washing machine. Um, but I just instantly fell in love with uh, the industry and the buzz of London. Um, and so I've never really looked back. What's interesting is the speed in which you've managed to um, achieve so much, as you say, you know, you took the decision to go to that catering college um, in Westminster. Mm-hmm. You then got a job at the at the Ritz under the fantastic John Williams. Yeah. And uh, you've got a head chef job. Now, I suppose on the one hand, that's a fantastic inspiration for a lot of young people. But then also, I suppose it might give people the impression that actually you can get up the ladder that quickly. Or maybe you can. I wonder if the dearth of staff um, in restaurants, the, the shortage that's uh, is doing so much damage and creating so much trouble yeah. maybe you can rise but then 
you, I suppose, you know, your rise has nothing to do with the pandemic, Brexit or the staff shortages because you're there already at the top at, uh, at the Princess of Shoreditch. Yeah, it can be. It can be, I guess, on both ends. You know, one is... Every, uh, yeah, every opportunity I've had, I've really pushed myself. So if there's ever been a competition, you know, I think I think there are great things for young chefs to get into because you're constantly trying to learn new skills. Every time you go into one, you're given a new brief. So in that in that sense, I was always pushing myself to be the best I could. Um, but also people may think I'm not experienced enough. So I do, and I do appreciate that on both ends. Um, but, you know, I've made sure at every single opportunity that I've, I've really gone out and, you know, stayed the extra hours if that's what's needed, asked the questions, written it down, uh, practiced at home. Like, uh, so, you know, I think I hope I'm at the position uh, where I'm here fairly. And on the same end, I know that I've got a lot of chefs in my kitchen that are equally as talented as me. So, you know, I listen to any ideas that they have and it's very much a equal playing field here. And I think that's why the team, we're quite a young team, but we get on really well because nobody's kind of, you know, you go to a lot of bigger teams and there's lots of egos and everyone's kind of constantly trying to be the best. Whereas here we're, we appreciate that everyone has strengths and different experiences. Yeah, nice to hear that. And if you're someone who's, let's say, 16, 17 or older than that, and you're a bit unsure about what to do next, you know, you've read bad things about hospitality, the bullying in the business. Um, you see it on TV, of course, famously characterised by mm-hmm. by Ramsey, we've seen allegations of bullying in in various restaurants. It's been in the fall recently. What would you say to some a young person who's who thinks you know it could be worth a punt, but a bit worried about it? What are the highs? What are the wonderful things that you can experience in hospitality? It's obviously a a business of so much versatility. You can go into so many many things. But from your perspective as a as a chef, mentoring, chatting to young people, what would you say to encourage them to go into the business and, and follow in your footsteps? Yeah, I think, I mean, just really finding the right the right place that's best for you, I think, is the, the be all and end all. You know, you can be a chef in lots of different avenues. Maybe the restaurant, I mean, for me, it's always going to be restaurants, but maybe restaurants are not the thing for you, but there's lots of other different avenues you can go down, you know, catering and things like that if you still want to have your evenings and weekends but you're really passionate about food and I think it's just finding what's right for you at the beginning instead of thinking I need to go to a restaurant and then actually falling out of the industry completely um and then if you're within restaurants you know there is I think for every every kitchen where there's bullying and bad things there's hundreds and thousands that are that you know fantastic I think and that we see the bad ones, I think that's a good thing. You know, I think before people were very quiet about about it and you wouldn't hear about it. I think now that it is coming to light that there is bullying and things going on is is only a sign that things are getting better, actually, because people are speaking out and talking about it and they're being named and shamed. Uh, it's not just being brushed under the carpet anymore. Yeah. The thing is, though, it's not brushed under the carpet also because people do wear the stories of, uh, let's put it mildly, harsh treatment at the stove by certain chefs. They they wear those as badges of honour. And it's quite difficult if you've got a culture where people almost sort of want to brandish the scars on their arms if they haven't got any tattoos, that they're almost proud that they made it through these tough sort of army-style barracks, these brigades of chefs you know, where life was difficult, where the hours were tough. It's quite hard when you're fighting with a culture where people survive that and are proud of it, but you're trying to create a a kinder, more hospitable hospitality environment. Yeah, it is. And I think it's only the people, you know, like that are at the top, the sous chefs and the head chef's position, 
um, that you're not sharing those stories with your younger chefs because they're going to pick up on it. And so it's our responsibility as chefs, if we want to encourage more people to come into the industry, you know, if we want people to be in our kitchens and restaurants and helping us and getting through the day so that we're not working 78 hours a week, um, you know, it's up to you to not share those stories and to lead the example Um Otherwise, you're only you're only kicking yourself freely. Yeah, and we've touched on we've touched on the hours there. Now, of course, one of the challenges that comes in a young woman's life is the prospect of, you know, having kids, and then it's pretty hard to work at a stove if you're supposed to be chopping. It's it's quite hard to be doing bath time if you're supposed to be prepping <laughs> vegetables. Yeah. Now you're you're 25. Um, you know, you've got many years ahead of you where you might, so. if you choose to do so, have some sprogs. Do you see that as, as an issue that needs to be combated or do you just have to take that in your stride? And of course, no doubt as a head chef now, you're going to be dealing with those sort of, you know, HR issues of, of people going off, having children want to come back and work, you know, maybe part time so they can balance life and work. Where, where are you thinking at the moment in your position as head chef at the, at the Shoreditch Princess? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I mean, it's not really a thought right now, uh, but uh, I'm sure maybe in the future it will be. And I think that was another thing why I really wanted to achieve everything that that I want to achieve and achieve all my goals kind of quite early on. So that if that did become something that I wanted to do, it would be maybe easier to kind of step back like a little bit. Um, and yeah, we need, you know, we need to be flexible for, for other people coming in. You know, we can't really, you know, beggars can't be choosers, as I say. And uh, right now we need uh, everyone we can go out. And if, you know, if you've got a fantastic chef that is a woman and they're going to have a baby, you can't penalise them for that, you know, and you have to work with them and you've got to work around it. Otherwise, you know, having them at 50% of the time is better than not having them at all. So, mm. And traditionally, and actually I think, you know, it still exists, uh, hospitality restaurants are one of those places where people can literally turn up, knock on the door and try and get jobs. It's a famous part of the story of all sorts of legends from Marco Pierre White and beyond. Are there people knocking on the door of the Princess of Shoreditch, seeing you as an inspiration and trying to find work, or is that not happening anymore? Uh, you know, and, and is that a symbol of, 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 of the of the national crisis of of uh, staff shortage? Yeah, I mean, I think before you, used, I think obviously it was a lot more prominent before. I think since we've reopened, we've had a couple, but not nothing like uh, what we used to have. Um, my KP actually came around. Actually, he's a. Uh, He's a really great guy to write. He's deaf, actually. Um, but he's come into our kitchen. He can lip read, so he's really kind of working really well. Now he started on veg prep. Um, it's just one example. But, you know, he he just kind of came around and knocked on the doors. Like, I've seen uh, you on Instagram, and I'd love to kind of come and work here. Um, and, you know, it's another so- a story. Like, you have to be flexible, yes. Uh, you know, he's got some uh, things that we need to work around and I'll be aware of and help him kind of get through the day. But he's a fantastic little worker and... So, yeah, you know, it's just nurturing people in the right way and treating everybody. I know you should treat people, everybody the same, but not everybody needs to be treated the same because, you know, people react differently to different things. Mm -hmm. Now, people may have heard about you because you did appear on the Great British Menu. You reached the finals of that great BBC show. Um, So if people are excited to taste your food, let's just briefly at the end of this chat, look at the menu that you've got. uh, you've got your bull's heart tomato, mushroom butter, British corn, 
What are the dishes that are kind of emblematic of, of where you are in your journey at the moment as a chef that you're proudly putting on the menu at the at, at uh, your pub in Shoreditch? Yeah, so upstairs, uh, since we've reopened, we're just doing a tasting menu. It's really helped us to kind of refine, obviously because there's only three of us in the kitchen. It's really helped us to refine those dishes. So we only have eight dishes on at a time up there. Um, and that changes seasonally. You know, I'm all for British suppliers. Everything we can use from Britain, we're using. Um, so that really just kind of moves with the seasons. So at the minute, we've got a grilled corn dish up there. So there's a corn parfait. And then underneath, uh, charcoal and hazelnut praline. And then it's got some pickled nectarine and things on top. But the idea is when you eat all this dish together, it's like eating a, a piece of corn from the barbecue, which is something uh, that I really love to do in summer. Um, it's one of my favorite t- like summer flavors. Um, and then downstairs, we do a lot of homemade charcuterie. So as a group, we buy a lot of whole animals in. Um, from Lion's Hill Farm. Uh, we break those down at Smokehouse, our sister pub, and then all the bits kind of get shipped off. Um, and I'll always take anything, any bit odd bits and bobs and turn them into charcuterie for the downstairs, which is a lot more kind of pub feel. It's a bit more relaxed. Uh, we've got beef wellingtons and kind of classic British dishes downstairs. Mm, well, you're wetting my appetite there. Um, so finally, head chef at 25, where would you like to be in 10 years? Age 35, what, where's Ruth Hansom? Is she running a group of restaurants? Would you like to get into to ownership? Or uh, will the uh, the elasticity of Darlington grab you back up north? <laughs> um, you know, I've got a lot to achieve here at the Princess, so I think um, hopefully it won't take us 10 years. But, um, you know, I will say I would love to get a Michelin star here with the uh, with the team Um yeah, so we'll just have to see what goes. And then after that, I don't know, the owner here is really fantastic and supportive. He's been in the industry for several years, working with Marco on the front of house side of things before he uh, broke when um, opened his own pub group. So I think definitely sticking with him and we'll see We'll see what goes on. Maybe we'd relocate to more of a restaurant location um, if we did achieve here. So yeah, that's the goal. Great. Well, we will watch your career progress and your charcuterie what you're doing with those ends of pork uh, with interest. Uh, It's wonderful to have you on Biting Talk. Ruth Hanson, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, you've probably heard of dark kitchens, those insalubrious places in the back of beyond trying to replicate food brands that then get delivered to your house in a matter of minutes. But there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's a new thing. It's called a light kitchen. The man behind it is Charlie Gent. He's the founder of Mission Kitchen. And the light comes in the form of encouragement, workspace, mentoring for young, budding food entrepreneurs. It's a field that Charlie Gent's been in for some time, but uh, he's he's now uh, on Biting Talk to tell us about his latest mission, Mission Kitchen. Charlie, welcome to Biting Talk. Thank you very much. What an introduction. So this is interesting. Co-kitchening, co-working. You've got 30 founding members. Um, Getting into the business is tough. I know that we've spoken before because you've been involved in various pop-ups and um, it's probably in some circumstances you could say easier than it ever was because you can start with pop-ups and you can start restaurants in shipping containers. You can start serving food, you know, street food, but it's still a very difficult business. Restaurants still close at the rate of knots, particularly we've seen a lot of the last uh, the last year. How is Mission Kitchen going to help? And are these 30 founding members, are they investing or are they food entrepreneurs who you are sort of mentoring, so to speak? 
Yes, so the 32 founding members who joined us, we opened about two months ago, just over two months ago, and we had 32 businesses who joined us as founding members at that point. They're all food entrepreneurs um, and they work across different areas of the industry, I suppose. A lot of them are from the food service world, um, caterers, street food traders, uh, and pop-up chefs, um, and increasingly people who work across all three of those areas, kind of interchangeably. Um, but also people who are developing food products, um, whether those are packaged goods, sauces, snacks, we've got bakers, and then increasingly businesses who are uh, online businesses, e-commerce, direct consumer food businesses, which obviously exploded as a, kind of a new segment last year. So that's who we've got in at the moment. And and yeah, I mean, I think there, there are increasingly channels and that's continued over the last few years uh, more and more ways for people to to test out products and sell to uh, to customers I, my background was in running street food markets so seeing that firsthand but one challenge that really hasn't been solved yet for a lot of food businesses over the last few years is like the infrastructure challenge of of where you can go to actually uh, produce and prep uh, food and products at volume and efficiently in a really high quality facility. So lots of food businesses, in fact, almost all independent food businesses start out working from their kitchen at home, but are immediately limited in terms of the quality of their equipment and the, the volume that they can produce from there. Obviously, for people in rented accommodation or sharing flats, it becomes impossible, if not you know, incredibly complicated. Um, and so the opportunity to, to kind of transfer that into a really high quality kitchen space where you can use top notch equipment, but to do that in a way um, where it's affordable and available on flexible memberships, which is what we offer, uh, starts to solve that problem. When you talk about memberships, flexible memberships, um, you've got a sort of what grading of, uh, of entry price. You charge some people certain amounts because obviously it's, it, it can be expensive hiring even a even a room and putting in you know your sort of steel tables and, and a sink so a, a young entrepreneur who maybe is doing a little i don't know a vegan bap or something you know what's the entry into your business how what, what's the sort of how much they're going to have to pay frankly so it's exactly as, as you said there's a whole range of of price points and, and membership options at mission kitchen um which range from a part-time membership up to a full-time private commercial kitchen unit. And, and, and that's part of what we offer is that kind of pathway that people can move from, from a real concept in development through to a, you know, a national brand running from a kitchen here. But the entry point for us you know, is a part-time membership in our shared kitchen where people can book shifts flexibly in a, in a large open plan kitchen where they work alongside other food entrepreneurs. And the, the cheapest membership we offer is 200 pounds a month uh, and that gives someone access to the kitchen for for 20 hours in our off-peak periods which are evenings and on saturdays um, so it's perfect for someone who might have a full-time job but is just starting out with their vegan bap um, and just wants to be able to come in you know one evening or on a saturday to come and develop their product or produce at very small scales um, they can do that for less than the price of a, a a co-working desk in a in a co-working space. Yeah, and and I suppose also they've got people to talk to, people to share their problems, grievances with. Absolutely, it must be a rather wonderful creative atmosphere. Is it full of chatter, or is everyone sitting there toiling away in silence? <laughs> it's a bit of both, but no. It's I mean the 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 chance to join a community of other food entrepreneurs and spend time working with them, collaborating, just you know building relationships with them is one of the most 
the things through our kind of application process for memberships, the thing that came out most strongly almost was, I think, food. Although, you know, it has a perception, I think, of being a very kind of sociable and connected industry. The, the reality for a lot of early stage businesses who are just starting out is it can be very isolated. Um, and a lot of people spend a huge amount of time on their own. Um, and, and that is, you know, challenging on a, on a personal level, but also people, you know, don't necessarily know where to turn for just a bit of advice or some feedback uh, and support from other people who are in a similar position to them. So, so yeah, I think as much as people benefit from being able to use our ovens and our hobs, being part of a network and a community of other businesses at similar stages is, I think, just as important and appealing. And as you say, if you're a young caterer or an old caterer and you're, you're working in your rented accommodation kitchen, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of dead end. And the fact that you, you're going somewhere that's clean and, and, and as, as I was suggesting, sort of creative is, is, is rather interesting. Let me ask you a, a question. Um, this isn't a charity. You've got, uh, you know, amazing businesses, wonderful ideas popping up. Are you taking a stake in these businesses, Charlie? We aren't, not yet. I think it's definitely something that we would you should love be. to look you into. Fool, you fool, you <laughs> fool, you can make a fortune. Um, and it's something that I think, again, you know, it, it's one of the problems. Yeah, we're here solving a, a kind of an infrastructure problem to start with around kitchen space, but there's all of these other services and support that these businesses need and would really value. So we're starting out already with that around providing them with um, training opportunities around business skills. We're pairing them with mentors. We're starting to build up our own kind of supplier databases they can work with. So it's all steps towards a full service solution for them. But definitely funding is something that so many of these um, these startups need access to and don't necessarily have the networks or the, the know-how to get that. So there could be a stage two where they grow and then and you might think, oh, I might actually pump money into this because I've seen the way they work over the last six months a year two years and um that could be provide an interesting pathway yeah for you exactly i think we've taken a lot of inspiration from um both similar kind of projects to this elsewhere in the world so in in the states and also uh, in a few places in europe there are these kind of incubator kitchen projects which um which operate in similar similar models and equally incubator and accelerator programs in other industries so Yes, we, we're not doing it just yet, but, but watch this space because I think we'd, we'd definitely um, think there's value both for us and for them in, in, in making access to funding in that way um, more easily available. And what I suppose is also interesting is that you're there at the coalface of a fairly new pit, if, if I may say so, put it like that. And uh, you must be seeing some interesting food trends. W- what's going on in the Mission Kitchen that we might find turning up on Deliveroo or a product on a supermarket shelf quite soon. Are you seeing some interesting new ideas coming through your business? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the key um, the key trends that we've seen that I think is really interesting isn't necessarily about um, new kind of cuisines or, or, or products in that kind, but more the type of business model that, that food businesses are embracing now is this, this shift to direct consumer and to... Um, food businesses being a kind of business that can operate online. I think last year um, forced a lot of both industry professionals and, and existing food businesses to innovate and find new ways to, to sell their product when they weren't able to go through the traditional routes of street food markets or even you know um, restaurant and cafe venues. And that, that kind of move towards the the, what started out with meal kits and um, other products that you could purchase online, I think is just 
accelerated that shift to businesses being able to sell products that you never would have previously imagined being ones you'd buy from an online store um, coming to you through your letterbox. So we've got members who are doing frozen vegan ready meals, um, empanadas, uh, Greek pies, fermented chili hot sauces, all of these things, which are now um, they're carving out their own channels and their own relationships directly with their customers uh, and kind of cutting out the middlemen. And I think it's a really interesting shift that we're seeing in the in the industry widely that people are starting to bypass those gatekeepers and, and start to have those relationships directly with their customers. And are you seeing, is there a particular age group? Are we talking about young people or have you got a few people in their 50s, 60s, 70s even who are having a change of career? It's, it's a bit of both. We, we, we definitely skew towards, I think, younger people and, and the majority of the businesses that are, um, that are here in this founding membership group are kind of early stage concepts. Um, but we do have uh, some older members as well. We've definitely got some, I'd, I'd hesitate to guess at their ages, but um, some people definitely who are kind of career change or people who have um, been working in the industry for decades, but have always been working for someone else and are now looking as many people are, I think, after after the kind of the shakeup that happened last year, to do something on their own terms and and kind of take um, take the initiative to start their own business. So we've got um, we've got a few people in kind of old age groups who are in the kitchen now, and we've just reopened applications for memberships recently. And certainly, I've had a couple of calls today, in fact, with some older. Um, older entrepreneurs who are who are starting something brand new. Um, right, and and speaking of which, your first application did I think it ended in March. So, um, is there space for for new entrepreneurs if they're listening and they'd like to get in touch? What should they do? Yeah, absolutely. So we we ran the applications for our founding members, as you said, in kind of in March um, and, and closed it after that. But we opened our applications again about two weeks ago. Um, so any food entrepreneurs who are interested in finding out more about what we offer, the best thing to do is go just go to our website, which is missionkitchen.org um, or find us on social media. And yeah, applications are, are currently open and we'll be bringing the next kind of cohort of members in from the start of September onwards. Um, and we have plenty of space available. Fantastic. Very intriguing. Well, I think it's an amazing business. Um, good luck, Charlie. Uh, fantastic to have you on the show and thanks for describing it so well. And best of luck to any budding entrepreneurs out there. Now you know where to go. Charlie Gent, thank you. Thanks so much. Now, the weather might be slightly cooling, but people are still grilling when the sun comes out. And what better than a sight of a flame and a grill and a sausage? But of course, there are a lot of issues when it comes to actually what you are barbecuing with. Those blackened lumps of coal, what is happening to the greenhouse gas emissions? Well, um, I'm going to speak to a man who has set up a company called Whittle and Flame, aiming to combat some of these problems sustainable charcoal. Uh, he's, his name is Chris Taylor. He is the co-founder of the business, Sustainable British Woodlands. So it's a welcome to Biting Talk to Chris. Hi, Chris. Good morning. How are you doing, William? I'm very well, thanks. So there you are, Whittle and Flame. You're um, producing your briquettes or whatever you want to call them um, on the Cornbury Park Estate in Oxfordshire. Funnily enough, not, a, not a, literally a, a stone's throw from where I grew up in a little village called Chilson. You're there by the Witchwood Forest. Before we talk about how your business works, from your perspective, apart from the fact that sometimes when you set fire to a bag of 
sort of supermarket or garage bought barbecue and you get that scent of, uh, well, uh, basically petrol. What are the issues? Because I'm assuming that rainforests, I don't know, forests having to be cut down, there are carbon dioxide emissions. What's the case against conventional barbecue coals, first of all, before we talk about what Whittle and Flame are doing? Well, it's quite interesting, but a lot of it is um, sort of lack of knowledge, I'd say. And, um, you know, with different products that we do buy from sort of butchers or supermarkets, we are more aware of sort of their traceability and where they come from. And one thing that generally the British public is not used to is um, thinking about whereabouts their charcoals made. And you think, uh, sort of about two thirds of the world's population still use charcoal as a fuel um, because it's an incredible fuel. But unfortunately, it can often be one of the sort of worst things you could do with a piece of wood. So, you know, that can often really lead to a lot of environmental impacts that, quite frankly, we're quite naive to. Okay, so conventionally, um, how is a brick of charcoal made, and where does where do most of the charcoal bricks that are in the UK market, where they come, where's the wood sourced? So the briquettes and sort of lump wood, um, and generally um, we're quite good at sourcing the um, charcoal from you know a lot of third world countries. So you have got a lot of South America um, and a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, um, a lot of Asia, sort of Indonesia as well. And um, quite often they're basically deforesting um, virgin rainforest. Um, in not particularly or not sustainable ways and then they are using a method which is most commonly used it's called an earth clamp method and that's where they basically light a big old great big fire and they smother it with um, sods of earth and basically smother that fire and then that fire will sit there smoking for hours and hours and hours quite often days um, until the sort of charcoal is produced and it's cooled down and then they will um, export that thousands and thousands of miles to um, our little supermarkets. So basically all the way through the process, you've got um, negative environmental impact from the cutting down of the trees to the burning of the wood to the export of the wood and then the actual emissions from the burning of the charcoal when you're eating it. So there's several touch points of of sort of disastrous consequences. Now, if you were an environmental crusader, uh, wanting to stop this, wouldn't it be best if you just campaign for people to, let's say, use gas, for example? Um, or are your whittle and flame briquettes, uh, you know, producing, you know, far fewer emissions so that it really is a, a good story? Or, or are you sort of adding to the problem because you're still cutting down trees, creating smoke, and then secondary smoke when people are actually using your own charcoal? Well, that's the thing. So straight away, um, you've got the sort of the gas side of things. Um, well, straight away, that's a fossil fuel, so it's not sustainable. Um, we're never going to get that back again. Um, so, you know, that's definitely uh, you know not a direction we can go in forever. Um, and but I would say definitely sort of using gas will be better than using deforested rainforests um, and exporting it all the way over here. But um, a, key, a good point where you said there about, you know, is it a good thing to be cutting down British woodlands? And that's a slight misconception there because the way we manage woodlands and have done for tens of thousands of years um, in this country is completely sustainable and 
the oldest trees in Britain are absolutely from coppice managed woodlands where when we, as you say, sort of cut a tree down, we don't actually cut that tree down. We will almost give it a haircut. So we'll take the tree down from the stump and upwards and a beautiful thing happens. So in a closed canopy British woodland where you have, you walk around and you can't really see the daylight because you've got great big tall, nice straight trees and then see all the leaves up at, up the top. So you do some thinning, you take down selected trees. So you've got lovely straight timber that you can take off and we'll turn that into charcoal. Once you do that, you open up this beautiful um, circle of sunlight that will just shine down through into this quite sort of dark and stale or stagnant woodland. And then once that sunlight comes down, you'll suddenly get all the little wild flowers will start popping up. The stump that people think, oh, we've killed that tree. We haven't because huge amount of that tree lives underground. We'll start growing sun-seeking shoots that will suddenly start growing up. And within five years, there will be um, 40 foot tall, which, you know, depending on the species of tree, which is quite incredible. And uh, then you suddenly get butterflies, wild birds will start flying around and you get a huge biodiversity will actually come into that woodland. Imagine if we did that throughout the woodland, just a bit of thinning. Um, then you get increase in biodiversity and you, you also create um, a much faster uh, sort of process of carbon sequestration. So as that tree is growing, that will absorb a huge amount of carbon. Whereas if you imagine if you've got a, a woodland that's just existed for a long time, you know, hundreds of years and hasn't really done anything, that will not be sequestering that much carbon. So right, yes. you think a growing woodland will always suck more carbon than a grown woodland. Okay, well, that was very eloquently described. So let's move on to the next stage. Um, you've chopped down your, you've got your, your timber. Um, what is it that you're doing that's, that's more sustainable in terms of actually creating and making the charcoal? Well, so straight away, um, as we sort of mentioned before, so we're on Cornby Park Estate. So our woodland is, well, it starts about a mile away from our yard and then continues to about three or four miles away. So all of our trees, just they literally, we got two um, foresters called Alan and John who hand fell the trees and then they will um, load them onto a lorry and they'll just come straight into our yard. And so there is very few, I say food miles, because we always talk about charcoal like it's an ingredient. But, you know, there's very little sort of impact of getting that wood into our yard. And then we process it all there straight straight from the forest. Um, but the most exciting thing we do is we have developed um, our very unique uh, sort of novel way of making charcoal in our kilns. So our kilns are actually electrically powered and they don't require a fire um, to run. And we actually use them as distillation machines. So you think the idea of distilling anything is heating it up until it splits into different products and then you can remove those products and you know sell them or you know process them further if you need to. And uh, so we heat up a piece of wood and we get five valuable products straight from every piece of wood because the amount of energy in a piece of wood is mind-boggling. We don't realise that, but you think when you light a fire, all that heat comes off of just that single piece of wood. That's all energy sat in that piece of wood. So... As we heat up a piece of wood, we actually break it into five different things. So we obviously get the carbon, which we sell as barbecue charcoal, and that's our sort of most valuable product. Um, then we get um, wood gas, 
So that is a flammable gas in the same way as you'd know natural gas. Um, and we can use that to power a generator to generate electricity. Uh, we get more heat from the wood as we heat it up than we actually put into the wood. So that can be recovered to dry more wood or using other processes. Um, we will get a lovely little uh, chemical that we call wood vinegar. Now, this is mostly made up of acetic acid, the acid that we all know and love in sort of white wine vinegar, things like that. So wood is full of acetic acid and um, most charcoal processes will release that into the air, contributing into like acid rain and acidification of quite a lot of the environment. Whereas we recover that, we make about 600 litres of that a day, quite a lot. Um, and we are now approved by the Soil Association for use on organic farming as an agricultural organic spray, which is quite exciting, instead of using sort of fossil fuel derived chemicals. And so your your briquettes uh, are, are easy to light, you say. When you say they're easy to light, how easy are they? What do you do? I, I mean, because obviously you're not squirting petrol over them. Yeah, so we got <laughs> so we've got the two two things we got. So we got the briquettes, but we, the main thing is the lumpwood charcoal, really. Um, and that is the easiest thing to light. So we make charcoal to an exact temperature because we control it with a computer within sort of two or three degrees. And the temperature we make it at, um, we actually retain the lignin or most of the lignin from the wood. So where wood is made up of three things, you've got cellulose, hemicellulose and lignin. Now lignin is the part of wood that contains all the wood flavour. So if you burn a piece of wood or smoke with a piece of wood, you get that lovely wood flavor and everything so that that comes from the lignin so we make the charcoal that retains that flavor so uh so and we, so it's all really consistently made and so when you do light okay. it it will just um you can light it with a match in about three or four seconds and then um you'll just get that beautiful flavor start starting to come through okay brilliant and then just final question how seasonal is this because obviously people tend to grill i mean there are some people who grill all year round but um when you're not selling your briquettes um i suppose you just continue to store up charcoal for the for the next summer season yep so we do we do get quite a few people who grill all year round you know it's good too because you know it's the best time to light a fire is when it's cold outside uh keep you warm but we do get a lot of restaurants as well so um we've got local restaurants near us who cook on great big fire grills and um sort of restaurants in london because a lot of people are cooking on fire now because of the beautiful flavour that you can have. So it is quite seasonal, but we do get a reasonable trade over the winter. Okay. And uh, to purchase these, do we just go to whittleandflame.co.uk? Yeah, just onto the website. Um, and we do mainly mail order. Most of the time it's next day delivery. So um, there's no need to wander around, you know, if uh, to supermarkets or things. We can just get something straight out to you. For the Great. Next day. Well, listen, um, Chris Taylor, a masterclass in uh, the making of charcoal. I hope you've inspired some people. Um, uh, I think it sounds an absolutely amazing business. And uh, so best of luck and thank you so much for coming on Biting Talk and um, and talking all about it. No worries, William. Well, thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, we'll see you soon. It's that time of the show where we alight at the house of Heydari, where brandishing his cocktail shaker like a man who is worried that uh, he's run out of vodka, Angostura bitters and ice. Uh, yes, he's in a fevered frenzy. It's our Biting Talk mixologist, Farhad Heydari. Welcome to the show, Farhad. Great to be back on, William. Quick question, just a random one. 
Uh, lobster with cheese, question mark? Uh, absolutely not, without cheese. Yeah, without cheese. Uh, thank you, thank you. I think it's a big question. I want to, um, I've written a review. It'll be out in a few weeks' time. I have to say, lobster with cheese, big thumbs down from where I'm sitting. Why ruin a beautiful crustacean, this thing that has crawled its way across the ocean floor, uh, eating whatever it eats and uh, getting it meat, getting its meat all lovely and succulent. Grill it, a little bit of oil, maybe some parsley, season it, but slobbering all over it with a, a, a cheese. Oh, oh you ruin it. It's just a crime. It's a it crime. It is a crime. These poor crustacea, they didn't die for this, right? No, I've got indigestion just thinking about the idea of cheese on, a, on that beautiful lobster. No, no way. No way. Ixnay on the cheese. Exactly, great. <laughs> Calm us down with a, uh, a spirit that will attack our negativity and anxiety and will bring life, joy and calm to the nation. Well, and that's exactly what we have. We have exactly the prescribed uh, cocktail. It's a hot toddy, William. That soothing, warming, and calming nightcap. How do you like that? Have you looked out of the window? Where I'm sitting right now, there's not a cloud in the sky. This is an Indian summer. Oh, we're, we're frozen here in London. There's a, there's, a, well, there's overcast skies, the, the temperatures in, in the teens. Oh, no, this is terrible. So here's, how, well, here's what you need. Uh, you need three quarters of a cup of water. Okay, I'll speak to you in a minute. Get, get on with it. We got three quarters of a cup of water. We'll take an ounce and a half of whiskey. Now, we're taking Macallan 12-year-old Sherry Oak. It's deliciously smooth. It's got those lo- lovely, rich, dried fruits. We're going to take two to three teaspoons of honey to taste. And this can be, of course, that very important antibacterial, antiviral, and anti-inflammatory Manuka honey variety. And then we'll take two to three teaspoons of lemon juice to taste, one lemon round, and one cinnamon stick. That's optional for garnish, Mr. Sitwell. We're going to pour the boiling water into a mug and then add the whiskey, the two teaspoons of honey, and the two teaspoons of lemon juice. Stir until that honey has disappeared into hot water. Then you can add a bit more for sweetness and zing as you prefer. Garnish with that lemon round or cinnamon stick and boom! That's your very relaxing postprandial hot toddy to calm and and soothe you. Okay, I'll take your word for it. We can look forward to um, vodka watermelon slushes in in, uh, in December, maybe, and ice-cold uh, Aperol spritzes in January. <laughs> yeah, it's it's called contrarian, uh, contrarian cocktails. Okay, that's great. Listen, Farhad, come back next week uh, with something more sensible, please. Uh, uh, <laughs> will do, of course. You, you, you realize that we're being geographically agnostic. Uh, Biting talk is heard in uh, 170 countries around the world. So, you know, we need to have a larger tent, uh, uh, meteorologically speaking, of course. I apologize for being seasonist. <laughs> it shall never happen again. Farhad Heydari, still alive on the House of Heydari. We'll see you next week. Uh, great to see you, William. Thank you, Farhad. Well, listen, for a cooler, more summery drink, why not head to williamshousewines.com where I've got a Chardonnay from Olivier Coste. Perfect for your fridge door. That's it for this week's podcast. I'll be back soon with more Biting Talk with Two Chicks, effortless free-range eggs in a carton, and the brains behind the brilliantly inspiring Two Chicks Empowerment Fund. My thanks to producers Front Ear. I'm William Sitwell. Goodbye. Goodbye.